So let's jump into the second session. So if you missed the first session, uh, we're doing salvation. Hopefully you all have your book. Um, Carol, are you lounging? Oh, you have your foot raised. I'm like, I'm like that is awesome. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> fine with me. Um, so, hey, this is the family room, by the way. If you haven't been in here, this is our family room. Uh, the goal is for this to feel a little cozy. It's actually circled up intentionally so you can see each other, not just the teacher. Uh, some of our rooms are designed to feel like classrooms, and some are designed to feel like, hopefully, your family room. Is this how your family room is set up? Like concentric circles? Mine's not, but this is closer than maybe the classroom. Um, so in the first session, we talked about everyone's favorite subject, the depravity of man, just the reality that without God, um, there is no one good. So when the Bible says there is no one good, not one, uh, the Bible's real about that. Uh, what about that neighbor? What about that guy, that lady, that sweet older woman who gives your kids full-size candy bars on Halloween? Isn't that a good person? Well, the question is, what are God's standards? Not your standards, my standards, maybe society's standards. And according to God's standards, Good is that means we have to be as holy as God himself. Good means that we need to do everything with a thankful heart, everything to his glory, everything in his name, everything needs to be done in faith. There's like all these expectations that are kind of thrown at us um, that we're supposed to meet in order to be considered without sin. And the reality is, is no one lives up to that. Hey, Wayne, could you hit that door for me just so we don't listen to music all night? Um, so, so that's, where we, that's kind of where we started. The reality is that there is no one good, not even one. All of us are considered dead in our sin. Um, we just don't meet God's standard, and we never will without God's help. So tonight, in session two, if you want to open up with me, <clears throat> page 12, we talk about repentance and faith. So to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, we need repentance and faith. Uh, Next week and the week after, we're going to talk a little bit more about like, what Christ did to make that available to us. But our response to the work of Christ needs to be repentance and faith. So even today, as we talk about it, I want you to have two thoughts in mind. When we talk about, and we're going to talk about repentance first, I want you to think about it in two ways. So as I write on the board here, there's two different ways. One, repentance has much to do with conversion. At the same time, repentance has must, much to do with our communion with God. It has to do with both, conversion and communion, both of those things. So as a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are in a covenant relationship with Him. Much like my wife and I, or maybe you and your spouse, or you and a close friend, have a, a committed relationship to one another. When I mess up, or if my wife messes up, well, it's just, usually it's me. When I mess up, which is usually how it works out, <clears throat> I want to go to her and tell her that I'm sorry. And I ask for her forgiveness. I tell her what I did. Um, if I try not to tell her why I did it, because that's usually me trying to defend myself. I tell her what I did and the fact that I'm sorry. And when I do that, I actually go deeper with my wife. Like that relationship actually improves through honest, open communication, through saying I'm sorry and having a legit apology, like we go deeper together. So repentance here, we're, we're talking about it in light of conversion, but we're also, just so you know, the whole time talking about it in light of communion, in light of going deeper in our fellowship and our love for God. 
So that is always happening. Because you and I, unfortunately, even though we're fully forgiven, our sinful nature didn't just go away when we became a Christian. You and I still struggle. All those expectations we looked at that the unbeliever doesn't live up to, every single day, you and I as believers also don't live up to those expectations. Whether we're aware of it or unaware of it, we just don't. So we always have this opportunity every single day, maybe every hour, maybe every third minute, to go to the Lord with things where we've struggled in motivations, intentions, thoughts, sometimes even things that we should have done that we just decided not to do, sins of omission. Those also are opportunities for us to go deeper in our communion and relationship with the Lord. So we're going to go into that and talk about that quite a bit as we go forward. Uh, but before we do, I'd like to pray and ask God to help us as we move forward. <clears throat> Father, this topic of repentance and confession and faith is not a small topic. In many ways, this is at the heart of how we grow in you. So Lord, I pray that you'd make that clear. Speak through your word. Have your Holy Spirit be present in a very clear and powerful way that our hearts would be changed, that we might be drawn closer to you, that we'd fall more in love with you. Uh, use this time to, to grow us, to change us, and just to help us. In Christ's name, amen. So, in my opinion, with this topic, which I think is a very self-reflective topic, like we're going to talk about stuff here that I hope you go home tonight and think about. If you don't go home tonight and think about this stuff and work through some of the things we talk about, it really is not going to accomplish the goal that I have for it. Uh, we're going to be, and I warned you the last week that we we're going to try to do this and see how it goes, we're going to be working through a lot of this book tonight. It's called The Doctrine of Repentance by a guy named Thomas Watson. It's, a, it's an old-school Puritan paperback. Anybody ever read one of these Puritan paperbacks? Okay. Good. Yeah, great. So Trudy's read some. Anyone else ever hit one of these? These are great. This is a great little collection to have on your shelf, are these Puritan paperbacks. Um, but he basically spends this entire book, and it doesn't seem big, but wow, it is not easy to get through, just talking about what it means to have true repentance before the Lord. And for me, as I work through it, like it literally, it pushed me really hard, really far. Like, I found myself probably more tearful and more on my knees reading this book than almost any other book I've read in terms of how it pushes me to think about how I really view myself before the Lord, and how often I make so little of my sin. So <clears throat> I wish I could just insert that experience into your life, but I can't. So the best I can do, and what my goal is for tonight, is to take the best thoughts that I could find in here, put them on paper, and try my best to articulate them, illustrate them, and talk to you about them. And hopefully the Lord works in your life in some way to help you go deeper with Him in these areas. So <clears throat> to start with, page 12, uh, Thomas Watson, here's a good first quote talking about repentance. It says, the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. So in the most basic form, think of it this way, repentance is turning from sin, faith is turning to God. Repentance is turning from sin, faith is turning to God. So which came first? Repentance or faith? Did we see Jesus as beautiful and say, oh my goodness, he's beautiful. Faith, I should repent of my sin. He's so holy, I am so not holy, and then we repent. Or was it, I realize how sinful I am, I need a savior, so I repent and then I turn to the savior in faith. 
I really don't know. I think it's a chicken-egg conversation. I don't think we come to a clear conclusion in Scripture. You see repentance and faith mentioned oftentimes. Usually repentance is mentioned first. But you see other times where it sounds like God first drew someone and then their response was repentance. So you can kind of have verses on either side of that argument. So I kind of view it as one coin. On one side of it is repentance. On the other side is faith. Here's your coin. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good argument. And I would lean with you. But some people would say more it's a response of an acknowledgement of sin around you somehow within yourself, you figure that out. So there's more than one camp. In fact, next week we're going to spend the whole time kind of those two different points of view. Was it more me choosing God or was it God kind of choosing me? Which one was it? Uh, next week, I'll just prep you for it now because this is how we were going to end, is like I will come in for about 20 or 25 minutes, and I'm going to argue as though I'm one, one side. Like, I'm going to argue hard for it. Like, I'll give you the best arguments I know, and I'll do the same thing with the other side and argue it hard, okay? And then at the end, I may or may not give you a chance to ask me questions, depending on how I feel and how ornery you all seem. I'll see if I open it up for questions or not. <clears throat> so that's coming, but that, that, that's a good question. Uh, so repentance is continually preached for salvation. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Mark 1.15, we see the two together. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We see repentance is brought forth both by the word of God and by the spirit of God. Acts 2.37 says this, now, when they heard this, this is Peter teaching about Christ from the Old Testament, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here we see the word of God preached, there's conviction, and then there's a desire for repentance. In Acts 10.44, it says this, while Peter was still speaking, these words, so there's words being spoken, likely, likely he's preaching the words of God, it says the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And we see another group of people come to know Christ. So there we see the words of God and the Spirit of God descends upon them and both are in play, both are in action. So we would say as the word of God is being preached, the Spirit of God oftentimes, is, oftentimes also is in action. He's moving, he's pricking hearts, he's changing minds, he's moving people. So just like in our study of God's Word, where we said, in the study of God's Spirit, where we said the two work together, hand in hand, we would say that's true here in salvation as well. We see God's Spirit at work and God's Word at work. Uh, I think a good example of that is Colossians, if you want to go there with me. Colossians chapter 4, Paul's in prison, and he asks for the Colossians to pray for him, and the way he prays or the way, he, the way he requests prayer shows us that he believes that both are important, that the Spirit must be involved and God's Word must be involved. Chapters, chapter 4, verses 2, 3, and 4 say this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. That God would open a door. Okay, that, that means God's Spirit has to do something. God's Spirit has to move. 
And as the door is opened, it's the word of God that goes through that open door. So you see both kind of at work. Verse four is interesting where he says he wants them to pray that God would help him be clear when he speaks. That's a good one, right? That means that the words actually matter to some extent. Like he wants to be able to speak God's word intelligibly, clearly, in a way they can understand and connect to. So he actually prays that God would help him speak in such a way that the word of God is, is, is proclaimed and taught clearly. So we see both of those things even there as Paul is requesting prayer. Let's go to the next page. Page 13. <clears throat> so as we jump into the book, Thomas Watson starts off by telling us what repentance is not. Um, before we go much deeper, because he's going he's gonna to hit us with some hard things here in a minute, I want you to have a certain point of view and just a recognition of the two sides of this discussion. So here on the board, I'm going to put, um, the conversation is guilt and shame. Like, when it comes to repentance, he's going to start pushing you and saying, if there isn't some sort of sorrow, if there isn't some sort of shame, likely it's not real repentance. Well, aren't we forgiven? Why should we ever have guilt, shame, or sorrow? Those things seem out of bounds for the Christian. So let's talk about that for a second. So one side is there should be, for a Christian, no shame, guilt, or sorrow. No shame or sorrow. Now, some of you were probably raised in churches where they call these fire and brimstone churches where they think you should always have shame and sorrow. Like you should always feel a little bit guilty. Has anyone here ever been in a place where it felt like that? So this would be more of your always shame and guilt or shame and sorrow. We'll use guilt over here. Okay, so on one side we have no shame, no sorrow. The other side we have this always shame, always guilt, always sorrow. I would say in the middle of those two things is the beauty of the cross. So for the Christian, we know that we're fully forgiven, okay? But the same exact time we know that we are consistently struggling with sin and committing sin and not living up to God's perfect holy standard. So shame and guilt isn't a bad thing. On this side, with the no shame, no guilt, we think it's a bad thing. And it can be a bad thing if we get stuck there and we think this is who we are. But when we recognize sin, when the Holy Spirit convicts us or pricks us of sin, which he tells us that he does, oftentimes with that prick comes some shame, some guilt, and some sorrow. What that does is it causes us to run to the cross. Okay, so in this circumstance, in this situation, shame and guilt are our friends. They're a good thing, because what they do is they cause us to run to the foot of the cross and say, you even saved me from that. Your forgiveness is greater and bigger than I could have ever ima imagined. I'm so thankful for you. Now, if you get stuck in shame and guilt, that means you forgot to go to the cross. Does that make sense? So if shame and guilt leads us to the cross, it's beautiful. If you end up with shame and guilt and you don't go anywhere with it, it's devastating. It's isolating. It turns into despair and discouragement, which is not the life of the Christian. So it's okay to have shame and guilt, but shame and guilt is almost like a reminder, like a friend that says, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus, child of God. So this is okay. If there is no shame and guilt at all, ever, then you are unaware of your sin. Okay? And that might feel good, sort of, but in my mind, it's almost like a spiritual zombie. Like you just fall, like you're in this spiritual slumber, okay? You've, you're spiritually daydreaming. You've just 
become unaware of what's really going on in your heart, mind, and soul. So this is dangerous, and this can be dangerous if you never leave there, but this can be beautiful when you realize that Christ calls us to the foot of the cross when we experience and see our sin in light of his goodness, holiness, and love. So as we jump into this, we're going to look at first what repentance is not. Here's a couple things. One, repentance is not, page 13, a feeling of bitterness against sin. If pain and trouble were sufficient to repentance, then the damned in hell should be most penitent, for they are in the most anguish. Repentance depends upon a change of heart. There may be terror, yet no heart change. So just terror, fear, bitterness against sin is not the same as a heart changed heart because of sin, like sadness and sorrow because of sin. Another thing that repentance is not, is not just a resolution against sin. Uh, from the pain sin causes, so a resolution may arise from the pain sin causes and not because of the sin itself, not because sin is sinful. For example, during a hangover, everyone says they're not going to drink again, but when they forget about the pain, they forget about their resolution. They just do. From fear of future evil and apprehension of death and hell, this repentance arises from self-love, not self-disgust. A resolution may form in a storm of emotion, um, but it will often die with the calm. In repentance, the issue is sin, not fear for self. In repentance, the issue is the sin, not a fear for oneself. If the goal there is to repent so you're protecting yourself or to get out of something, that's very different. Okay, so I'm sure this has never happened to you and your children, but if you open the door to your kid's room and they're doing something you've asked them not to do, is their biggest concern in that moment, you know, that they're really sorrowful for what they've done or are they really mad they got caught? Those are two different things. Usually it's B, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, they're, they're mad they got caught. So there's two different forms of repentance. One, I want to get right with you. Two, boy, that stinks I got caught. Okay, so even with the Lord, there's two different sides of that. Uh, another thing that repentance is not, repentance is not just the leaving of many sins. While many sins may be left, many may also remain. An old sin may be left in order to entertain a new one, as one puts off an old servant to take another. Certain sins may be left as an act of wisdom, not so much as an act of repentance. A drug user who finally understands the consequences of his habit may quit using drugs. This decision is made in accordance to what would be best for him, not necessarily getting right with the Lord, not necessarily understanding the consequences, the sorrow for the sin that they've committed. Those are two very different things. True leaving of sin is when the acts of sin cease from the infusion of a principle of grace, as the air ceases to be dark from an infusion of light. Okay, there's actual change from dark to light. There's change. Okay, where there was sin and a desire for sin, there's now a desire for grace and knowing more of God. If there's no change, it's probably not repentance. And you'll notice as I quote these, these probably aren't the same way that you would describe this to someone. This is 17, 1800s way of, of speaking, which is fine, but you'll get used to it as we go. Um, it's actually kind of fun. There's a couple words in here that I'll have to define, and I had to look them up because I didn't know what they meant. Uh, so when it comes to the next section of the book, and this is the main section of the book, he talks about the nature of true repentance. He gives us six things. First is the sight of sin. There'll be no sorrow, there'll be no change unless you see it. So first is sight of sin. Two is sorrow for sin. Three is confession of that sin. 
Four is shame for sin. Five is hatred of sin. And the final one is turning from sin. So because there's like 13 pages here, I'm going to jump over some things. And when I jump over something, it doesn't mean I think it's not important. It just means I believe you can read it on your own. And I'd love for you to do so. Okay, but let's start with this one. Page 13 at the bottom. Sight of sin. Before a man turns to the light, he must recognize his darkness. Their eyes must be opened. Okay, in, in Acts 26, there's this idea of your eyes being opened. A man must first recognize and consider what his sin is and know the plague of his heart before he can duly be humbled for it. I love this next one. The eye is made both for seeing and weeping. The eye is made for both weeping, for seeing, and for weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. So when you see it, there should be an appropriate moving of the heart. Both of those things should be there. See it in a correct response to it. Page 14. So <clears throat> when it comes to this concept of seeing it, uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. So Hebrews 3.13 tells us that sin is deceitful. Sin by his very nature is deceitful. So you and I have sin in our lives, and one of the desires of that sin, or one of the, the aspects of the nature of that sin, is it kind of convinces us, us, that, convinces us that it's either not sin or it's not there. So it'd be kind of like us hanging out at dinner, and one of us has a huge green thing stuck in between our teeth. Okay, Everyone else sees it, and the more you talk, the more everyone sees it, okay? And a good friend eventually is gonna say, hey, like someone's gonna point that out to you so you can get it out. The same thing is true of our sin. We become accustomed to it. Sin does a great job of basically hiding itself from us. It's basically a game of hide and go seek. It, you're not even aware that it's there. You've become so used to it, it's become so normal to you. It's like you've had that green thing stuck in your teeth for an hour, you don't feel it anymore. You didn't know it was there you need people around you to be able to point it out to you. Like, there's, believe it or not, there's areas where you still struggle with sin and the way you treat people, and you're completely unaware of it, but there's probably five people in your life that are completely aware of it. They know about it. The question is, do you have the type of relationship with them where they feel totally comfortable pointing it out to you and having a conversation? Hey, dude, spiritually, you've got something stuck in your teeth. Can we talk about it? Do you have people in your life who can have that conversation with you? If the answer is no, there's two things going on. One, what type of people are you hanging out with? Two, have you set yourself up personality-wise where people are afraid to talk to you about it? Perhaps you're defensive. Perhaps you don't like those conversations. Perhaps you never open yourself up to those conversations. Perhaps you always give a reason why you act the way you act, even though they're trying to help you see something that perhaps you really don't see or they're connecting consequences to an action that you've never connected before and you just don't want to hear it. Um, we all struggle with that. I struggle with that. But if you find someone in your life who is willing to have that conversation with you, hold on to them. Make them one of your best friends. That's an inner circle type of person. And when they ask you about something or they push you a little bit, you thank them. You encourage them. And when they're done talking, you say, is there anything else? I want to know more. Is there anything else you see in me? Like, that person is a treasure in your life, a treasure. You can be a treasure in other people's lives if you're gentle, humble, and you ask for permission to share something with them, okay? Lord willing, 
as we grow in spiritual maturity, all of us together, we're looking forward to, and we're excited about those types of conversations. I've got a couple of people in my life that will tell me that, and I always thank them. I tell them how much I appreciate it, and we grow so much closer together in those moments. So leave yourself open to those conversations, both to having them and receiving them. If you do so, you're gonna grow so much more than if you don't have an openness to those types of conversations, because sin is deceitful, we need help to see it. And you'd be amazed how many people around you are aware of your sin that you're not aware of. It just is true. It just is true. Okay, sorrow for sin. Number two. Psalm 38, 18 says this, For I confess my iniquity. And then he says, I'm full of anxiety because of my sin, or sorrow, or pain. Like, there's lots of different ways that that word can be translated, but he's full of, like, discomfort because of his sin. His sin is doing this to him. So what does it mean to be sorrowful? Let's go down to the second quote by Watson there. It starts with a woman. A woman may as well expect to have a child without pains as one can have repentance without sorrow. You catch his illustration? It's just as likely for a woman to have a baby and have no pain as for you to repent and have no sorrow. In other words, both will always happen. Okay? Pregnancy and birth leads to pain. Repentance is also going to include sorrow. He can believe without doubting, suspect his faith, and he that can repent without sorrowing, suspect his repentance. The next quote is wonderful. The sorrow for sin is not superficial. It is a holy agony. It is called in Scripture a breaking of the heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51, 17, and a rending of the heart, rend your heart, Joel. The expressions of smiting on the thigh, Jeremiah, beating of the breast in Luke, putting on sackcloth in Isaiah, and the plucking off of the hair in Ezra. All these are but outward signs of inward sorrow. So in the discovery and the sight of sin, these are some of the natural, normal, biblical responses. Like when you see sin, this is what it should feel like. You visibly see what it should internally feel like in all of these pictures we're given here in Scripture. So when it comes to the purpose for sorrow, I'm just going to read the bold for time's sake. When it comes to the purpose for sorrow, there's several. One, to make Christ precious. Sorrow makes Christ precious because we run to Him. Sorrow drives out sin. Sorrow makes way for solid comfort. If there's no sorrow, there will be no comfort. If there's no pain, then there'll be no relief. Like, those two things go together. Sorrow creates a pathway for comfort in your life through the Lord and through your brothers and sisters in Christ. So sorrow is, is reasonable. Uh, that concept there where there is both true and false sorrow, that goes along with what we already said when we describe someone getting caught and being more angry they got caught than the fact that they were doing something wrong. Okay, so there's true sorrow and there's false sorrow. False sorrow is, sor false sorrow is being sorry for the, getting caught. True sorrow is being sorry because of the nature of what would, they just did, what they just thought what went through their head, the action that took place. Uh, the six qualifications for godly sorrow we're going to jump over. Let's head to page 16. We're going to go all the way to point six. Again, I encourage you to read those points in between. Uh, this section overall is about the purpose for sorrow. And then, nope, this is sorrow for sin. So this is the sixth point under sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow is abiding. Godly sorrow is abiding. The goal is not to shed a few tears and then never return to repentance. Repentance isn't like a, a one-time thing. 
Uh, true sorrow must be habitual. It's an all-the-time thing. That's very different than, I think, the way most of us live as Christians. True sorrow, which comes from repentance, is a habitual thing. O Christian, the disease of your soul is chronic and frequently returns upon you. Therefore, you must be continually, continually forsaking yourself by repentance. In other words, like giving yourself medicine for repentance. This is that sorrow which is after a godly manner. So there's this idea of habitual repentance. Uh, here's an, a way of thinking about this that helps me a lot. <clears throat> so on the board here, I'm going to draw a cross in the middle. So all of this is centered around the gospel. All of this is centered around the work of Jesus. But step one here is that we are able to identify at the top, identify sin and have an awareness of our sin. Okay? Once we identify sin and have an awareness of our sin, the next natural step is that there is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Okay? So that's the next step. <clears throat> but after that, okay, so habitually we should be doing this, but it doesn't end there. The next thing that we experience is joy in our salvation. This is the part that sometimes we forget. When we become aware of sin, we run to the Lord. And part of this is there's sorrow in this. Like we talked about that, there's sorrow in this repentance. But because there's sorrow, when I finally repent and remember at the foot of the cross all that he's done for me, that I'm completely forgiven, even that sin I just did, he's forgiven me for even that sin, the response of that is incredible joy. Like joy. Like, I can't believe you're this good. I constantly keep coming to you over and over again with sorrow because I keep doing these things, but you continue to be faithful. You continue to show love. Your grace continues to be sufficient. This is this point where worship and praise busts out of us as Christians, overwhelmed with the reality that no matter how much this happens, it always ends here, in joy. So without sorrow, there's no pathway for joy. Okay? There's no pathway for comfort. So this is beautiful. And with joy in our salvation, it leads to deeper fellowship, deeper communion with the Lord himself and oftentimes with one another. And as we're experiencing that deeper fellowship, the Lord usually says, hey, here's something else. And then here's something else. And then we identify something else. And when we identify it, we're not discouraged. We're encouraged. Because it was always there, the question is, were you going to see it or not? But now that you see it, you can take it to the Lord. And in sorrow, godly sorrow, you say, Lord, ask, I ask for forgiveness for that thing. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I keep doing it. I don't know why I love it more than you. But I'm so sorry for that. And we find ourselves again at the foot of the cross. When we describe this concept of having a gospel-centered life, this is what I mean when you hear me say it is that our life is centered around the truth and the reality of the work of the cross is a gospel-centered life. I would argue that the more mature Christian is the Christian who's gone through this more times. The less mature Christian is the Christian who just doesn't make it around the circle. Now sometimes in the way we've been taught and the way we've been taught, been taught in the sermons that we've heard, sometimes we get stuck here. We're just told how terrible we are. And there's no hope of the gospel that complements that reality. So yeah, we, we aren't great, but Jesus is. 
And that's really all that matters because we're now found in him. So the bad news is we're not all that great. We still struggle with sin. But the good news is we have a Savior that loves us anyway. So we run to the good news. The faster you get around the circle, also the more mature you are. If you get stuck here, you can't get past this, you just live in your guilt and shame, that means you're slow to go to the foot of the cross. It could be you're embarrassed to tell the Lord about it. You don't want to tell the Lord about it. Maybe you're not sure if he's truly going to continue to accept you and receive you if you tell him about it. But over time, you start to trust him. Part of this movement here is this movement of faith. It's faith that pushes me around the circle. Faith pushes me here. And as I go through it, it grows. It gets stronger and bigger and thicker and more powerful and more robust. Okay, So all of this here is causing me to fall more in love with Jesus. All of this is causing me to fall more in love with Jesus. And according to Scripture, my love for Jesus is what measures my spiritual maturity. Right? When it says, when, they get, when Jesus gets pushed, summarize the Old Testament law. He goes, it's simple. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. So how do I fall more in love with him? It's by seeing him like this. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the work of Christ causes me to fall madly, deeply in love with him. So my encouragement to you is as we go through this, view sin as an opportunity for joy. View sorrow as an opportunity for comfort. Okay? I'm not saying go sin so that you can find joy, but there's already some in you. You don't need to go looking for it. Okay? You might need some help to see it, okay? but it's already there. Is already there. Okay? Any questions? We'll probably come back to this, but any questions about this before I jump back in? Does this kind of make sense? A gospel-centered life. Okay? That's a good one. There's a day when we're going to do this for a whole core class, because we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about this, and I would love it. Like, there's tons of verses here, tons of verses here, tons of verses here, tons of verses here to help us think through that. That concept in the gospel where we say Jesus transforms this is what I mean when I say that. Like when those words were written down the first time, this was, what in the, was in the back of my mind when I wrote down Jesus transforms this. So I'd love to do a whole core class on Jesus transforms. And we just work on this together, okay? So Lord willing, that day will come. All right, let's go to page 17. We're going to bump down to number three, confession of sin. According to Watson, there are eight qualifications for genuine confession. If you read this book, it is so funny because he writes in the form of an outline. So even if you look down to the bottom of the page, you see number eight, and then there's an A, and there's a little A, B, C, D. Like, that's what's in the book. Like, he actually is an outline. I don't know if that's, I think, you know, there's multiple Puritans that wrote that way, but we're not going to go into every detail, but we're going to look at just the main points of the bold. So, <clears throat> eight qualifications for genuine confession. Confession must be voluntary. If your pastor just says you have to repent, it doesn't really do much good. Like there has to be something in you that wants to repent. Confession must be with compunction. In other words, your heart must be a part of it. If it's just words and your heart's not a part of it, it's not really repentance. It is one thing to confess thing. It's another confess sin. It's another thing to feel that confession, to have your heart be a part of what you're saying. Confession must be sincere. Sometimes only the Lord knows. But confession, true confession, must be sincere. A good Christian is more honest. His heart keeps pace with his tongue. 
Isn't that a cool thought? His heart keeps pace with his tongue. In other words, when words are coming out of your mouth, your heart has a consistency with what it's experiencing, what it's feeling, where it is, with the words that are coming out of your mouth. That alone can be radically changing for many of us. His heart keeps pace with his tongue. He is convinced of the sins he confesses. He abhors the sins of which he is convinced. Good stuff. Point four. In true confession, a man is particular about their sin. Particular. So it's not so much the end of the day, and I've done this a hundred times. Lord, forgive me for just all the stuff. Just forgive me for the stuff. I know I probably had a bad attitude. I know I probably could have done better. I appreciate your forgiveness. Thank you for the cross. Good night. Go to bed. So, like, I've done that. I'm sure, I'm sure none of you have ever done that, but, like, I've done that. The more we can be particular, like, have an actual awareness of the things we actually did and the thoughts we actually had, the better. Sometimes that means that we don't just save them all to the end of the day. Because by the end of the day, you've compiled, you and I have compiled so many that you're going to forget some. So sometimes when we talk about the idea of it being habitual, like, it's moments that you're having every single day. Okay? A thought you had, like, oh, where'd that come from? You know, I, I knew I should have done that, and I chose not to do that. Like, there's another opportunity. There's little opportunities all day long to get right with the Lord. Okay? All of us have them all the time. If you're not aware of them, ask the Holy Spirit to prick and prod you. I dare you. Ask Him. That's a prayer He loves to answer. Ask that the Holy Spirit would prick and prod you about your sin. A true penitent confesses sin in the fountain. Okay, that's, it's a really interesting way of saying that. A true penitent confesses sin in the fountain. He acknowledges the pollution of his nature. The sin of our nature is not only a privation of good, but an infusion of evil. It's almost like you start confessing a particular sin, you get to the point where you're almost overwhelmed by all of your sin. Like sometimes it, it starts as a leak, but ends up being a river. Sometimes it starts as like a little, you know, like squirt out of a faucet and it turns into a fountain. Okay, that happens oftentimes when we start to confess. It's, um, it's like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He basically realizes he's in the presence of God. And he just starts repenting. Like that's his first response. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Like he just starts realizing that he's sinful and everyone around him is sinful. What is he doing in the presence of a holy God with all this sin? Like it just turns into a fountain of repentance. Paul in chapter 7 of Romans, and I think we'll mention it later, but if you remember chapter 7, it's the section where he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I just never seem to do. But he keeps saying that like 10 different ways. At the bottom, he finally says, oh, who will save me from this body of death? Yeah. Like he gets overwhelmed. So it starts with like, you know, these little statements and then it really builds and builds until all of a sudden it's like this fountain. Who will save me from this body of death? And then it shifts and turns to praise because there is one who will save him. And it goes to chapter eight. Okay. So, Sometimes that happens in our confession, in our repentance. In confession, we must so charge ourselves as to clear God. Remember in the garden, God's like, hey, you messed up, you sinned. And Adam's like, you gave me that woman. Like, you, you made her. Like, that's where it's kind of like this. In true repentance and confession, we say, this is all on me. There's nothing that you did wrong here. Everything that I did, everything I thought, in this sin, I did it, Lord. I'm to blame. You take the blame, okay? We charge ourselves. God's name is cleared in our repentance, in our confession. We must confess our sins with a resolution not to act on them over and over again. Now, likely, many of us have prayed that and said that, 
and then did it the next day. But in our heart, there's a desire, there's a resolution to not do whatever that thing is again. Okay? And then point eight is the uses of confession. We will not go into those. There are a lot of those. Uh, let's move to page 19. Point four. Shame for sin. Shame for sin. Ezekiel 43.10. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. Ezra 9.6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have, riv- have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Okay, the response there to a recognition of sin is embarrassment, shame. Luke 15, 21, I think this is the prodigal son. It says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. An appropriate response for our sin. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. Listen to that again. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. So when we're standing in the fountain of His grace, there is a little bit of blushing when we realize our sin. Like there's that concept of shame. Like he's, been give, he's given us so much and has loved us so unconditionally, yet we still choose sin over God. There's going to be some blushing. Every sin makes us guilty, and guilt usually breeds shame. Point two, in every sin there is much unthankfulness and ingratitude towards God, and that is a matter of shame. Listen to this quote. To make an arrow of God's mercies and shoot at him, to wound him with his own blessing, how horrid ingratitude. Will not this dye our faces a deep scarlet? Oftentimes with our sin, we're taking mercies, mercies and blessings from God, doing whatever we want with them, not using them in the way that God has intended. And in that, we sin. So we take the very mercies of God himself, form it into a weapon against God, and shoot it back at his face. What horrid ingratitude is his point of view. How true. For our sins have put Christ to shame. Our sins in a world where we represent Christ as an ambassador, as an aroma of Christ, as salt as light, our sin puts Christ to shame. Many sins which we commit are in allegiance with the devil, God's enemy. Treason should bring shame to the heart and tears to the eye. In our sin, we've said, I'd rather follow my old dad. I like my old dad better than you. Remember Satan, the devil? I prefer him over you. That's part of the attitude we have when we sin, whether we're aware of it or not. Our sin shows our foolishness. We choose our way instead of God's way. We think ourselves to be wise when really we are fools. Is someone about to explode? There it was. If you are, just let us know. We'll, we'll move. Um, <clears throat> number seven, top of page 20. Our sins are worse than the sins of the devils. The lapsed angels never sinned against Christ's blood. Okay, did you catch that? Our sins are worse than the sins of the devils. In other words, the demons. The lapsed angels never sinned against Christ's blood. Like, we know Christ. We know what he did for us. And we still choose to sin. Like, they had no redemptive plan. Christ hadn't died when they chose to fell and chose to rebel against God. We know all of that. And we still make that choice. Oh, let us take holy shame to ourselves for sin. Be assured, the more we are ashamed of sin now, the less we will be ashamed 
at the coming of Christ. Okay, number five. So again, just when we're talking about shame, we're going that hard into shame. Remember, shame pushes us to Jesus. Shame turns into joy. Okay? Now, what I like about these guys is they take their time. Sometimes we'll talk about shame and we're so nervous that someone's going to have a bad feeling that we rush to joy. He is in no rush. He'll go 100 pages on just shame. Okay, so he's in no rush. So even within me, I feel this compulsion to want to say, but don't feel bad. Joy's coming around the corner. But, <clears throat> but like, let the, let the shame piece sink in. Like, let it sink in. Those things I would go back to and let it sink in. Um, I would encourage you to pick up this book maybe and read it. Okay? Go two weeks reading that book and you'll get to the joy part for a long time. Let it sink in. Okay? Um, I find it beautiful and very, very hard at the same time. Number five, hatred for sin. For what I, and here's the section from, from Paul in Romans 7. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. He hates his sin. He finds himself still doing it, but he hates his sin. That's normal. Let's jump to number six. And this is the final one. We also turn from our sin. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sins and will heal their land. That's a promise made to the nation of Israel a long time ago. It's not a promise made to Charleston. But the principles of what God wants his people to do are still the same today. Humbling ourselves, praying, seeking his face, and then turning from our wicked ways. There's a, a turning that takes place. In Ezekiel 14.6, we see the same language. Repent and turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your abominations. Don't say you're sorry for your idols and then keep them in your living room. Turn away from them. Get rid of them. <clears throat> Make a different decision. Go in a different direction. So the turning is that key sixth point that Watson highlights for us. Dying to sin is the life of repentance. Dying to sin is the life of repentance. So we're going to jump from here all the way to page 23. <clears throat> Big intentional jump. So that's repentance. Let's talk about conversion and faith. <clears throat> faith plays two roles in the life of the believer. It is through faith that one is saved, and it is by that ongoing faith that a Christian grows in Christ. In other words, the faith that saves you is the faith that grows you. The faith that saves you is the faith that grows you. Faith plays two roles in our life, as the same faith both, both justifies and transforms the believer. It's faith that causes to it the first time to look on Christ and to love him and to trust him with our salvation. And it's that same faith that continues to call us back to the cross every single day. It's the faith, it's faith that calls us to the cross the first time and the second time and the third time and every time ongoing until you see him face to face. Faith is a part of our life always. Um, so a definition uh, Theiston has a definition here. It says, in its most simple definition, faith is turning the soul to God. The turning of the soul to God. A more extensive definition is faith, which is the word pistis in the Greek. It means to persuade, being persuaded, faith, belief. In general, it implies such a knowledge of, assent to, and confidence in certain divine truths, especially those of the gospel, as it produces 
good works. Acts 3.16 says, And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man who you see and know. Romans 1.17 For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Old Testament, during the time of Christ, New Testament, faith was the thing that saved people. Faith was the thing that saved people. Not works, faith. Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Finally, Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have a definition of believe, which I'll let you read, but it's that same concept. Let's go to Romans 10 together. If you have friends in your life who do not yet know the Lord, and I hope you have some, These are some good verses just to know, to help you as you have conversations with that person. So Romans chapter 10, this describes kind of what this movement of faith looks like. So Romans 10, verse 9 says this, uh, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for it's with a heart, it's with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and it's with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So you see like a verbalizing of your faith, and you see a change of heart with that same faith. It's like that concept we had from the very beginning. You know, that where what your mouth does, hopefully your heart is catching up and with what you're saying. Those two things go together. When it comes to salvation, we see both of those things at play. When we baptize someone, you'll usually hear us say, what is your sacred confession? And we've already prepped them, and they usually say, Jesus is Lord. Why? Because that's the confession that believers make. And Lord willing, if they're getting baptized, we've already had conversations about where their heart is, that their heart is believed. So we say they believe, and they also say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Both of those things are what God calls us to. So those are good verses as we talk about what What's coming up next? Uh, Go ahead and go to the next page. Those are multiple verses about believing, which are similar to the ones we've just read. Watson would say, and so would almost every theologian you're going to read, when it comes to faith, there's three elements of saving faith. The first element is intellectual. Like We actually have to know something about God. We have to know something about Jesus. We have to know something about what he did for us. So there's an intellectual component. But I have to realize that's not the only component. I mean, Satan himself knows who Jesus is. He believes that Jesus died on the cross. He knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. But he doesn't, there's no movement of his heart. There's no movement of his volition or will. So those are the other two components. So just knowing all the right things doesn't save you. Just knowing all the right things doesn't save you. It's a part, but it's not the only part. So the intellectual element is part of it. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So there's a, there's a certainty. We believe it, even if we don't see it. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Like, God's words are usually a part of what somebody needs to hear to receive him. In Romans, it says, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Because that good news is what somebody needs to hear to then be saved, to make that decision. So there's definitely an intellectual element, but there's more than that. There's also an emotional element. Burkhoff says this, 
When one embraces Christ by faith, he has a deep conviction of the truth and reality of the object of faith, feels that it meets an important need in his life. So there's an emotional connection there as well. Um, his heart is moved. So page 25, when we talk about the heart in Scripture, and God's not afraid to use this word. It's the Greek word cardia, which you probably could have guessed that, but the Greek word cardia. When we talk about heart, oftentimes in our culture and like in our circles, we're usually talking about emotions. We usually talk about heart connecting to emotions. But here in Scripture, the word cardia uh, is attributed to the heart, which includes thoughts, reasoning, understanding, will, judgment, designs, affections, and emotions. Like basically, everything that's inside of you, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about all those things. So when the Bible references your heart, it's your thoughts, it's your affections, it's your emotions, it's your will, it's all of those things. Okay, so it's a little bit of a broader term that we use in our day when he talks about the heart. Okay, so we see this connection of the head and you understand things and then you're also moved by it internally. Everything that's inside of you, your judgments, your affections, your emotions are all also moved towards Christ. And then there's also the volitional element. Okay. So when we say volitional element, let's go to the Burkhoff quote, the second one. It says, the third element consists in a personal trust. Like there's a, there's a movement of the will. There's a personal trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, including a surrender of the soul. Like an intentional, volitional surrendering of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ and a reception and appropriation of Christ as the source of pardon and spiritual life. So volition means that you are making a decision. There's a movement. There's a change. Matthew 8.22 says this, But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. What Jesus is saying there is to say you're one of mine means that you're going to change the way you live. I become your highest priority. When he first meets the disciples, they're fishing, and he looks at them and he says, Follow me. And it says they put their nets down and they followed him. So there's like an actual, so volition is this movement, like there's a decision that's made that's almost outwardly seen, like they followed him. They let the dead bury their own dead and they went with Jesus. He becomes the most important thing to them. Luke 14, 26 through 33 talks about the fact that we must love Jesus more than our families, more than our possessions, more than everything we have is Jesus. So in saving faith, we see the mind is involved, our internal world, our emotions is involved, and our will, our choices. There's a movement that takes place to say, I surrender to you. All those things are usually a part of what we call saving faith. To take out one of those components seems like it's less than what Jesus is actually calling us to. So unfortunately, I think, I think that there's lots of people who've prayed prayers who never actually received Christ. Sometimes we cause people to pray prayers under convulsion. Um, convulsion, that's the wrong word. Com say that word. Compulsion. compulsion. No one's convulsing. If someone's convulsing, then you're really adding too much compulsion. Okay? So people who pray under compulsion or people pray under, like, they just want to make their mom and dad happy or make their pastor happy or they just want someone to stop talking to them about it, that's very different than what Jesus describes as saving faith. So our goal is never to talk someone into becoming a Christian. Our goal is never to argue someone into becoming a Christian. Like, I love apologetics, but 
I don't know if I've really seen many people ever argued into the kingdom of God. Like there's an actual change of heart. There's a recognition of sin. There's repentance and this faith that is a change of mind, heart, and will. Okay? So just remember that as you're talking to people, as we're talking to our kids, as we're talking to other people's kids, if we serve in those ministries, the goal isn't just to force them to say a certain number of words in a row for salvation. If that's all it took, I would personally invest in billboards all around the city that says, Jesus, come into my heart. We see the whole city saved like that, right? Shoot, I became a Christian. I didn't mean to, but I said, Jesus, come into my heart. Now I'm a Christian, right? So, but that's not how it works. That's not what saving faith looks like. We don't trick people into becoming Christians. They are moved intellectually. Their emotions are moved, and they make choices that all go together into what we call, what Jesus calls, saving faith. Okay? Next page. <clears throat> this page and the next couple pages after this are pages that I expect you to read before you come next time. I don't usually get pushy and say I expect you to do something, but I expect you to do this. If you don't do this, next week's going to be really hard for you. Uh, next week I'm going to come up here and I'm going to present myself as an Arminian. What an Arminian believes is that we are completely responsible for our, not completely, we are in some way responsible for our own salvation. We chose God. And I'm going to come in hardcore, and I'm going to use the best arguments I know, and I'm going to come in as a guy named John Calvin, and I'm going to push the biggest arguments I know, the best arguments I know, saying, God chose you. You had nothing to do with it. Okay, so I'm going to come in hard with both of those guys. I won't be Pastor Mike, okay? I'm going to be one of those guys. I'll say things that I maybe agree with, and I'll say some things I probably don't agree with, but I will say them so that you can see two points of view, Lord willing, the best way of seeing each, okay, so that you can kind of figure out what you think, okay? Um, but isn't it really both? Ooh, depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to James Arminius, he says yes. If you're talking to John Calvin, he says no. <laughs> hmm. So I'll let you argue with James. I'll let you argue with James a little bit. I might let you argue with John a little bit. If I was the person in the middle, I would say it was both. Well, you would be friends with James Arminius because he likes saying both too, but not with John Calvin because he wouldn't say both. Because both says a little bit of each, which means man's involved, which pushes someone automatically into one of the two camps. It just does. Okay? But you can have that conversation with James next week. I'll have that conversation tonight with God. We'll see. <laughs> okay, good, good. We've been having conversations with God since the 300s about it, and no one's come to a conclusion. So it's, it's a really, it's a hard thing. And I believe that we can land on different points of view with that and still be completely united with one another in Christ. Okay? And it didn't even start with Arminius and Calvin. With Arminius and Calvin, it started with Augustine and Pelagius, you know, 500 years before that. So this has been a conversation that we've been having forever. And there's people smarter than both of us on both sides of it, who know God's word better than both all of us on both sides of it. So we're not going to have a conclusion. I'm just going to present two points of view. And you can figure it out. You and the Lord and God's word together. Let me pray for us and we'll finish up. Father, I thank you so much for each person here. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. Um, allow us to be people who are excited to see sin in our life that we might take it to you. There already is sin, but Lord, so often we're deceived by it. We don't recognize it. We don't see it. We're not aware of it. So bring awareness to us as your children and allow us to, in sorrow, come to you with repentance that in faith we might run to the bottom, to run to your cross, to the foot of the cross, and enjoy, experience the joy of our salvation all over again. We're already saved, but how beautiful it is to see your grace flowing into new parts of our life, experiencing it in new ways as we fall more deeply in love with you. So God, grow us and change us and transform us. In Christ's name, amen.